Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is John Jones with John Jones Real Estate in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Last year, he closed 274 transactions with a total sales volume of $36 million. His average sales price was $131,000, of which 45% were buyers and 55% were sellers. He operates a team with nine members, four sales associates, one listing coordinator internet marketer, one closing coordinator, one distressed property manager, one personal assistant bookkeeper, and one team leader. John Jones is the team leader of the John Jones Real Estate Team. He has been an agent for 19 years. He works the Rutherford County Market, 30 miles southeast of Nashville. John has sold over 3,000 homes in his career. In his best year, 2006, John sold 362 homes worth $72 million. In this call, John talks about how to generate 60 to 65% of your business by referrals from past clients, sphere of influence, and other agents. Getting referrals without begging, bothering, or pestering. How to easily make 24 to 30 contacts per year with your sphere of influence. Who to put on your target 25 list. It's not who you think. How to scrub your past client and sphere of influence list using this single question. Putting on three client appreciation events per year. Bowling party, barbecue, and pie giveaway. Including how to set it up, how to market it, and how much it costs. Surviving the deep, nasty, multi-year recession and the number one lesson he learned. The pain of shifting into a new business model immediately after investing in the old model. The difference between buyer agents and sales consultants and how to compensate for retention. Leads from Dave Ramsey. Building personal wealth through real estate partnerships and investment property what the exact profit margin is for his operation in good times and bad, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, John. All right. Thanks for having me. John, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got in real estate. Graduated college in 91 with a degree in business and a major in marketing. Played college football. I'll tell you that because a lot of the, a lot of the things that I deal with in business, you know, I have to go back to kind of my sports background sometimes. But I got a job right out of college with State Farm Insurance. Uh, they have a regional office here in my, in my town, and I got hired, hired out of that office. 
and they put me in um, Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is about an hour and a half east of where I'm from, and I was a claims adjuster and handled handled claims. I did that for about two years, and then I, then I came back home and got into uh, real estate in about 93. Why did you move out of insurance and into real estate? Well, that's a good question. Um, State Farm, by the way, is a heck of a company, and uh, I, I send a lot of my clients to, to them for insurance. But I realized kind of my, my goal going with State Farm was uh, I wanted to be a State Farm agent. And at that time, I realized it pretty quick that there would be no guarantees that that would ever happen just because I was with the company. And at that time, State Farm would hire a lot of their agents from outside the company. They may hire an old uh, football coach in an area to be a, an agent. They they would, you know, it didn't it didn't necessarily have to be a State Farm person. I knew I wanted to be in sales. I kind of thought, you know, I could stay here for 10 years and there's no guarantees that I would ever get an agency. And then I thought, well, if I stay here 10 years, you know, I'll kind of be locked in, you know. So I figured if I was going to go, it was the time to go early uh, and try to do my own thing. And, and, and so I, I saw, I had an uncle who owned a, a real estate company here in Murfreesboro, my hometown, and he had always thought, you know, always been really nice to me and it, it always told me and encouraged me that I'd be a great real estate agent. So I thought I was kind of special since he told me that. What I realized after I he hired me, he told that to everybody. <laughs> so, <laughs> he, uh, but anyway, uh, got into the business in 93 and uh, haven't looked back since. When you got in, did you have a fast start or a slow start? You know, I would call it a relatively just, um, it wasn't like super fast. I was still I was still uh, young. I was, gosh, I was 24, maybe. I was still immature. You know, I was still running around with my buddies. I wasn't married yet. Uh, I didn't even own a home. So I was kind of intimidated by not not even owning a home and, and, and having to sell homes to people. But uh, so I, I didn't take it as serious as I should have maybe the first year or two. But I still did pretty good. You know, I made a living. I was able to pay the bills and everything like that. I think my first year, I started in uh, I started in March, March first. I always remember that because it's my birthday. It probably took me a couple months, you know, two or three months to get my first commission check. And back in in that time, we were on like a fifty fifty split, you know, with our brokerage companies. I think I did like I think I made twenty four twenty five thousand that year, in in my part of uh, of commission. So. Probably did about fifty in GCI, but made about twenty, twenty three, twenty four. I left a job where I was making twenty eight a year, so I didn't, I didn't really see it that that I was not doing that well. You know, the average sales price back then was probably, you know, eighty thousand. I was doing okay, and then the next year that number basically went to about sixty five thousand my part, probably one hundred and twenty GCI. So I guess that's a pretty good start. You know, I had great training. That was one of the keys. My uncle had a small, you know, it was an independent company, uh, and he did all his own training. And I don't know if you remember Roger Butcher, but we did all the Roger Butcher tapes, and then he would meet with the new agents individually and really put a lot of time in. At the time, I didn't know that wasn't the norm. But as is you know, as I grew in the business and looked at other companies and other things, that was pretty revolutionary for that time. For about the first ninety days, he he held our feet to the fire. We 
we understood financing. We understood, you know, uh, how to call FISBOs, how to call expireds. We had scripts and dialogues. He even gave us a listing presentation to use that was kind of generic because we were all, you know, I was a new agent. But from day one, I used a listing presentation. And I'm a big believer in a listing presentation. So it was, um, it was really, I was really lucky. I was really fortunate to have that. Uh, didn't know it at the time to have that type of uh, mentor and that type of training. Well, I hope you've thanked him. Oh, I thank him every time I see him. He's, he, I go kiss him on his, he's got a bald head, and I always go up and kiss him on his head. I love him. Howard Wall was a huge mentor for me. I mean, he, uh, uh, unbelievable, unbelievable. How long have you been in the business now? 19, it'll be 20 and uh, 20 March 1st. John, how many homes did you sell last year? Last year we did 274 units, 274 homes. And how many did you sell in your best year? In 2006 was our best year, and we did 362 units that year. Well, John, you've been doing this business for a while, 19, almost 20 years. You've probably seen a lot of ups and downs in the market. Uh, How did you survive this latest downturn? You know, what's funny is I didn't see a lot of ups and downs. From 93, when I started, to 2000 and basically seven. even though we, we can look back and see it started drifting off in our market, 06 was our pinnacle. I mean, it didn't it did nothing but go up. Every year was better than the year before to 06. So I saw just a bunch of ups and then one major down, and... When you're in a market for 15 years and it goes up every year, even though common sense tells us and history tells us that there's going to be something that's, you know, it just can't keep doing this, there was a there was a feeling of uh, invincibility. There was a feeling that it, that we were in a local market that was just so good that and so steady uh, that that we were kind of recession proof. And, and, you know, you made a lot of decisions based on that. And, uh, and you know, hindsight being what it is, you know, you realize, you know, what a mistake that was. And so this hit us hard, man. It, it you know, I was like, uh, I was like a lot of folks, I guess. I was in denial. Uh, you know, 06 was great. 07 was good. We were only 10% off. You didn't even feel it from 06 to 07. So it was still really good. I still think we did 340, 50 units. But the end of 07, phone wasn't ringing as much. Kind of looked around a little bit. But we still, you know, it was kind of this, you know, it was a denial type thing. And then 08 kept falling off a little bit more. And uh, they stopped doing the loans and, you know, nationally that they've been doing. And, and uh, things really started drying up towards the third quarter of 08. Unfortunately, that's the time I bring <laughs> Fortunately or unfortunately, I guess if you're a glass half empty or half full person, I opened my own company in 08. You know, I was just a, I was with a Coal Banker franchise. My my uncle's company merged into a Coal Banker company and in the late 90s, and I was with them and decided, made a decision in 07 that I wanted to start my own company, um, basically just take my team and put it under our own roof and kind of have the autonomy. So we're a team concept company, independent. So the day my doors opened, my grand opening was like the first week in October. We opened for business October 1st, 2008. And you remember what happened in September of 08. That's when all the bailouts and all that happened. And I'm sitting there with this new company, and I mean, the phone is just not ringing. And I'm thinking, 
you know, could I have picked the worst day of the 15 years I've been in the business to open my company? You know, I'm sitting there, I'm looking up at God. I'm going, what's up, man? You know, what are we doing here? So it was a heck of an adventure, man. It really was. What did you do to adjust to that? We had to really adjust because the probably in 06 and during the glory years, 80, I remember going back and looking, 80% of my commissions were derived from new construction. I had gotten heavily involved in developments. I was a partner in three or four developments. I had a lot of builders that would uh, buy lots from me and exclusively allow us to sell their homes. And so, I mean, life was good. And then, you know, new construction just dried up in 08. So I'm opening this new company. My my business, that the builders were going broke right and left. And all of a sudden, my business model that had been in place, which I had basically used to formulate my new company, was 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 gone. It was it was done. It was just blown up. So we had to go back to uh, we had to go back to the basics. First of all, we had to we had to sit there and and really look in the mirror and go, okay, what's going on here? Let's get real about the situation. And once we did that, we are we we said, okay, where is the business going to come from? You know who who is the what is the business now? And the business wasn't new construction; it was um, it was going to be short sales. It was going to be REOs. It was going to be people that had to sell. You know, maybe they're moving out of town, maybe whatever, but they had to sell, and they had the equity to sell. So that's where we started focusing all our efforts. One of the first things we did. One of my main guys that's been with me for twelve years, Joe Hafner, who I love like a brother. He a uh, really smart guy. He he had kind of been handling. We had been buying a lot of flip properties and doing a lot of rental rentals and flips. He kind of been managing that side of the business, and he he decided to pull up where we collectively decided that he would need to roll up his sleeves, and he went to CDPE, learned how to do short sales. We started marketing that and started really you know trying to get a lot of short sale business, and we were very. Uh, successful in that and then we really went after a lot of reo business which we were clueless on how to go after it so we just started sending uh, our resumes and our, our our you know signed up on every website we were told to sign up on fannie mae freddie mac hud changed the way they did things so we applied for for that i mean we applied for everything we possibly could every reo company every bank everything we started with the local banks because some of the local banks still had some construction stuff and things like that out there. So I was successful in getting some of that. But the problem with that business is there just wasn't a whole lot of it because most of the mortgages were held by the big boys, the secondary market. So we sent that stuff out to everybody. And only one really hit for us, and that was HUD. And we we were able to get in with PIMCO, which was one of the vendors for HUD, when HUD split up their model a few years ago, um, I think it was maybe '09, we were uh, able to get a bit of that business, and that was huge for us. Between that and the short sales, that really kind of it kept our doors, you know, open and kept our bills paid. And then I was out there really humping the traditional business, and uh, we had to get back to the basics, man. We we gotten so spoiled, we had to we had to go back and start calling clients. And basically apologizing that, you know, I haven't stayed in touch with them the way I should have and kind of rekindling those relationships. And and so we really uh, made a big emphasis and big push on 
really loving on our clients the way we should have been doing, but, you know, we weren't doing because, you know, we kind of had our head in the sand when times were good. So that was basically kind of how we shifted everything. 09 was really a tough year. I mean, we went, I think we went down to like 200 units that year, and people out there are probably saying, well, 200 units, that's a heck of a year. Not when you built the model to support 300. It's really not. You know, you, your money start, <laughs> you start having to dive into savings and everything else to just kind of keep it afloat. Did you have to reduce your staff or reduce your office space? You know, going back and looking on it, no, really, you know, I built this new office. I had, I had, you know, I had nowhere to, I, I really was kind of, my back was against the wall. If I'd been in a traditional company where I had been the, the previous years, I, I probably could have really, you know, leaned up a little better, maybe. But this caused me to kind of, this caused me to really get after it. And I, that's why I think it was kind of a blessing. Uh, I could have carved everything down if I was at the old company and just maybe left it with two or three of us left, you know, and really kind of just sucked it up. But I'd opened this new company, and I had um, I built a building, and you know I had a payment, and we did one reduction in salaries. I, I was I didn't have to let anybody go. Maybe I should have. Looking back on it, reducing salaries sounds like a good idea, but I think people always hold a little resentment for that. But I did it. Everybody went along with it. I lost a couple people for natural attrition that I didn't rehire which kind of worked out pretty good and was able to kind of double up a position or two. But for the most part, you know, we didn't make any huge cuts. We really looked at our marketing. I was doing a lot of print in the newspaper. We really cut that back. I was doing, I think, at that time about 5000 a month in our local paper, and I cut that down to about 1000 and really started doing more online stuff and things like that. And picking up the telephone and calling people, that's really what I started doing. I had time, <laughs> you know. Let me switch gears just for a quick second so we all know where you're at. Where are you located? Where is Murfreesboro, Tennessee? We are 30 miles southeast of Nashville. And so we're kind of a we're kind of a bedroom community to Nashville. We kind of go as Nashville goes as uh as Nashville has really become a vibrant city and a lot of jobs have come to what we call we call middle, middle Tennessee. I think we're the only state in the union that uses the term middle. Everybody else uses central. But We've had a lot of success in, in this part of Tennessee, and, and we've benefited from that. A lot of people that are in our town get in their cars every day and drive to Nashville to go to work. And we have a big university here, Middle Tennessee State University. It's the fastest-growing university in the state, and it has about tw- an enrollment of 20,000 undergraduate. And that's also a very kind of a key component to, to our economy here locally. Do you know what the population is there? Yeah, the market I cover, which is basically our county, Rutherford County, is about 200,000, and uh, the city of Murfreesboro is right at 100. But I cover the whole county. That's kind of my target market. And we will slip over across the county lines a little bit, but that probably only represents probably, you know, 10% of our business. Describe your current real estate market. We're a pretty blue-collar market. Our average sales price this year is 162 up from 159, so our market is improving. To give you an idea, in our peak, our peak was 07 as far as pricing. It was like our average was 185 in 07. So we're 162 right now. We've had a good five years of decline. This year we are moving up. Um, we're 30% up over last year in total units uh, sold. 
our inventories are shrinking. At, at the peak of this thing, probably in about '09, we had about 11 months supply of homes. That number is down to about 4.5 supply. So it's really it's really improving drastically. But that has all happened. Uh, the improvements all really started at the beginning of this year. If you were to look out at your overall market right now, what percentage of the market is retail traditional equity sales versus REO and short sale? That's a good question. Up until this year, it was probably about 30% distressed, either REO or short sale. This year, I think it's probably, that number's probably more like 80, 85, 15, 85 being traditional, 15 being REO uh, distressed, maybe 80, 20, somewhere in there. The majority of your market is now traditional or equity sales. Yes, sir. And you've shifted back into that market where you've given us your history and how you had to move into the REO and short sale market to survive. Right. And now you've been moving back. And if I understand correctly, the majority of your business now is coming from referrals from past clients and sphere of influence. Is that correct? Right. About 60, probably 60% of our business and if you count realtor referrals, you know, about 65% of our business is, is some type of uh, past client or referral. And that's really, that really makes the most sense, in my opinion, on building a business. And that's really, even during the good times, I truthfully think we could have been doing so much more if we had really been focusing on that more so than, than we were new construction. And and so moving forward, I see new construction coming back. In fact, in our market, people are having to kind of build stuff, to, you know, because our inventories have gotten lower. So new construction is coming back. So that excites me because I definitely have plenty of lots for people to buy <laughs> that I've been paying interest on now for, for several years. That excites me, but by the same same token, I want to learn a great lesson from 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 that, that last thing we just went through, and that is that my emphasis will still be on on past clients and, and referrals and and then the uh new construction will just be an added benefit that that we'll, you know, obviously embrace, but we're not just gonna, you know, put all our eggs in that basket. Let's start talking about how you're doing this. How are you generating so many transactions from your past clients and your sphere of influence? So let's break that down into little pieces. First of all, how big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? It's probably sitting around 1,500 of what I call past clients or, or sphere of influence. And then our database itself with people that just come in and uh, we send out a, an e-newsletter every month. And that probably goes out to about 3,500 people. But of that 3,500, probably 1,500 are what I would call our good past client referral list. And the other couple thousand are people that have come into our system somehow, you know, maybe checking on the home or, or you know, raised their hand and said they were interested in something but haven't done anything yet. So the 1,500 is the ones we really focus on for uh, the mo- most touches, so to speak. Yeah, let's talk about how you came down to 1,500. How many homes have you sold in your career? Gosh, probably around 3,000. Okay. And so you probably actually have 3,000 real past clients. Why did you pare it down to 1,500? How did that happen? A lot of that happened because, you know, the first probably six, seven, eight years I was in the business, I didn't do a good job of keeping up with anything. I was just kind of out there selling, you know, 
in the wilderness, you know, so I didn't do that. But then uh, well, the way we kind of scrub our list is, you know, if, if obviously um, if somebody, um, you know, obviously if somebody dies, they come off the list. But um, if they move out of state or something, we probably don't. Um, and, heck, some of our out-of-state people, we still, <laughs> we still, with email, we still contact them. But, you know, you just start scrubbing the list as you go. You know, we've probably had a lot of past clients get into real estate. So, obviously, I'm not... I'm not banging on them anymore, or you know, maybe they, their their sister got in real estate, and that's kind of who they deal with now. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna waste my time, you know, calling them and doing things with them. So we just try to scrub it, you know, every year or so, just kind of look at it and say, you know, okay, who are, who are these people of our past clients that are that are staying engaged with us a little bit, and that we feel the main thing on that list is I want to say, okay. Would these people legitimately send me business? And if I think they would, they stay on it. And if I don't, then I'll we'll take them off. So you do remove people out of your list if you don't think they're going to repeat or send you referrals. Right. Yes, sir. Or, or if they moved or something like that. Well, there seems to be a different philosophy on past clients. There's two camps. One camp is throw everybody you know into this past client sphere of influence database, no matter what, and keep touching them, hoping something happens. And another camp does a scrub where they they put everybody in, but they remove people. They don't have any problem with taking people out. And it sounds like you're in the second camp. Do you agree? Yeah, I would say so. Yes, sir, definitely. And a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that we do uh, several client appreciation events a year, you know, so I really, you know, really try to love on them more so than, ever, you know, in the last three or four years. I guess we could have a list where we're asking, you know, 6,000 people to come to these events, but, you know, I think that would be a little bit goofy. So I'd rather just have real good quality people than just try to quantity, so to speak, where you can't really get to all of them. And I think if you make that list too big you're running the risk of, of not really being able to, uh, to to kind of give them that personal touch. Good. Let's talk about that. You said love on them. What does that mean? Well, we try to do something. Instead of just like always calling people or always calling our past clients and basically just asking for referrals, we try to just throughout the year do things for them and, you know, and just kind of show appreciation and, you know, very rarely do I ever ask that question, hey, who do you know wanted to buy or sell a house? I know that may go against the grain of, of real estate trainers, and it may not be as aggressive as, as as some people would tell you you need to be. But we feel like if we do a good enough job of just staying and doing nice things and showing appreciation for our people all year long, our clients all year long, that really we don't have to ask for a referral. It just kind of it, they, they send them to us. They want to send them to us. So we do a, an event at the first of the year, usually in February, when the weather's a little bit usually bad here. We do a bowling. We rent out a bowling alley on a Sunday afternoon. And it's a bowling alley slash deal where they have laser tag and, you know, all the stuff for the kids, all kinds of different little rides and things. And we rent that out, and we invite all our, our clients and their kids. And people are really they love that because it's a good thing to do in the winter. They bring their kids, you know, gives them kind of a free deal for their for their kids, and everybody has a good time. And and uh, my job at that party is just to go around, and I just go around and and just talk to people. And then at the end, we do have a we do have some raffles and giveaways. And, and at that time, I make a little speech, but the speech is mainly just um, thank you, you know, from the bottom of my heart, you know that 
we're in a referral business and if it's not for you guys we're not in business and thank you for your referrals throughout the year and we just appreciate you so much and and that that's basically it we just try to have a good time with them and, and it's not a big commercial for us it's more about them are y'all having fun do you meet everybody as they're coming in and give them name tags yeah we give them name tags because you know i have several buyer specialists and actually i don't even call them buyer specialists we just call them you know sales consultants and uh, because I let my my <clears throat> buyer specialist, so to speak, I let them list and sell. So sometimes there, there may be throughout the year where I've, I've never even met these people. So they have a name tag and they're coded on the bottom who they worked with. So I can you know go up and kind of say, oh, so you worked with Tommy. That's good to meet you, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I usually try to stand up near the front as they're coming in, and as the party goes on, and they're all over the place. I just try to work the work the room and go talk to people and you know just try to make find common ground and and just see how their lives are going and how their kids are doing and just all that good stuff. You said the name tag is coded on the bottom. Does it say the name of Tommy or does is it a color or what is it? I think we've done it a couple of ways, but mainly we'll put just the initials of the agent down at the bottom like TD for Tommy Davidson and DE for David Estes and that that kind of thing. So, it just kind of helps me a lot of them I know because through the transaction I've seen them, I've met them, but, but sometimes I don't. And that's just, you know, kind of an easy way to kind of just, so you worked with David, you know, where did y'all, did y'all, were y'all buyers or so? I mean, I don't sit there and I don't sit there and try to BS like, Hey, you know, thanks for work. You know, I just, you know, I ask them now, where did y'all, where did, where did y'all do? Did y'all buy or sell? You know, I just want to be real with them, you know, and, and they'll tell you and they appreciate that. You now people aren't stupid, you know, they, they know if you're sitting there trying to BS, you know. So I'm just straight up with them and just tell them how much I appreciate them. I do a lot of hugging. I'm a I'm a I'm a touchy feely kind of guy, so I go up and hug people and tell them how much I appreciate them, and you know, just uh, just try to just try to make it a good event about them and focus all my questions about them and and not about us. How long does that bowling event go on? Is it for a couple hours? Yeah, we rent the place for I think two hours, and usually we'll have about three to four hundred show up. And then we do in the spring in May we'll do a barbecue event. We're at one of the parks in town. I have a guy that uh, is a good buddy of mine, and he and he's a he has this big smoker, and he does brisket and chicken and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's just unbelievable food. And and we'll do the blow ups on that day. We'll do the blow ups for the kids. You know where they can come play and uh, maybe a electronical, what do you call them, a mechanical bull thing, and and climb rock walls and all that stuff. We'll have those guys out there, and then that's just another thing. It's about, you know, I've learned that you'll have a better turnout if you if you do stuff for the kids. I guess McDonald's and you know all those people have figured that out, and so I just follow their lead on that. And it's just if you can get the kids and have a place for the the, the families to take the kids and have a big day, um, you get a better turnout. John, I want to go back to the bowling just for a couple follow-up questions. You said you have a raffle and a giveaway. What are you raffling off? What are you giving away? We'll give away um, the kind of the big prizes are usually um, like Titans tickets. I, I have four uh, seats or club seats and parking pass, so I'll give away maybe one or two of those games. And then usually we'll have uh, some of our vendors such as our mortgage companies and stuff they'll do gift cards you know maybe a hundred dollar fifty dollar gift cards 
We'll get restaurants involved. They'll usually always do $25, $50 stuff. So usually we'll have about 10 or 20 but type type things that we'll give away. So a lot of people have a chance to win. And um, uh, a lot of times it's just calling, you know, restaurants I go to all the time and say, hey, man, do you got any, you got any uh, cards or anything I can give away to raffle? And most every restaurant's really accommodating. Bonefish here in town has been great. They'll give you as many of those bang-bang shrimp, free bang-bang shrimps as you want. So a lot of times I'll just go through and hang and hand those out, you know. So just stuff like that. So you're getting these items for free from the vendors and restaurants? Yeah, yeah, it's all for, I mean, usually it's all, yeah, I'm not usually paying for it. The only thing I usually pay for is the Titans tickets, which, you know, I'm paying for anyway, and I'm not going to hit every game anyway. So it's really not a big expense there. The expense, usually I think that deal runs us about three grand, even if you count. All the vendor participation about three thousand. I think it's money well spent. And your vendors, do they they show up? Yeah, usually our mortgage people. Yeah, our mortgage and title are usually the key ones that do. And then sometimes we'll have one of the insurance people in town that we we send business to or refer business to. They'll they'll be involved too. And are they doing what you're doing? Just walking around, meeting and greeting? Yeah, they do a little bit. You, a lot of times they're they're not so much doing that as much as they're doing. Uh, they're just a lot of times they just bring their families and they're having fun. Do you put up banners? Yeah, we do some banners there when they come in, and then at the bowling alley, they have TVs everywhere. So we'll run. Uh, I know one year we were taking pictures as we did it, and we were putting them up on the screens and kind of running a slideshow of the event as it was kind of going on. And uh, sometimes I think we've done video uh, testimonials in the past of our clients that, that we've done like videos on, just different stuff like that, just to kind of keep our brand coming up and just kind of making it, just kind of, you know, I don't go around like talk, asking for referrals and stuff the whole time. So I just try to keep the brand kind of up there and subtly, you know, and, and then subtly talk about referrals in my speech but um, I really don't go to every client or make them fill out something and ask them if they know somebody about about to sell their home. You'll be amazed at how many of those events where it just happens. You know, people come up and say, "Hey, John, we're going to be calling you," or "Hey, will you call me next week? We we've got this," or "Hey, my cousin's moving here from you know Alabama or whatever." So you know, probably I would say I've never put a number on it, but I bet you we get five to ten referrals out of every event just because we're there with the people. And building up all that goodwill. Right. The vendors, are they putting up banners also? On our banner, we'll put usually, the banner we do, we'll have sponsors, you know, we'll put their we'll put their uh, logos down at the bottom or to the side of our banner to kind of give them a presence there. But I usually don't ask for a big investment from them because I think when you do that, it becomes more about them. You know, or you, 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 I feel an obligation that they should have more input in the event. And I don't want, I want, there's a fine line of of it being an event that we really want to do for our clients and having a good time, or do we make it kind of a, a rolling billboard type deal? And so I, I just kind of go back and forth on that a little bit. You know, I just spend the money typically, and we do it. We'll get a little participation from them, maybe on some of the mail outs or something like that. But that's that they really don't. They really don't play a huge part in the events other than 
I think they might donate water or something. You know, at, at the at the barbecue, we ask them to donate drinks, and they do that. You know, so it's really not a huge uh, monetary investment I'm looking for from them. Do you offer any spiffs? Do you hand out any items to the people there at the bowling alley that you said water? Do you do you hand them anything that they can take home that has your name on it, your your pins or any kind of trinkets? I think we have in the past, but I don't think it's something that I really put a big emphasis on. It's it's more about just being with them. It's more about just you know looking them in the eyeball and saying how are your kids doing, how's little Johnny doing, is he still playing football, is he still playing baseball? Okay, that's great. Gosh, she's in high school now. Unbelievable stuff like that. It's more it's more relational than it is anything else. And then the last event we do at the end of the year, a few days before Thanksgiving, is the pie giveaway, where we we send out to our database. You know, they can come to our office to pick up a free pie. And at that event, that's a little bit more intimate because we're getting a little more one-on-one because they come scattered out throughout the day. And we have a little thing set up in our office, you know, where they can get some coffee and, uh, you know, some little finger foods where they can kind of hang around for a second. And, you know, we can talk and just kind of be together. And we get pictures with everybody. And and uh, it, it amazes me how many people will come get those daggum pies you know it's like hell you drive i wouldn't even drive across town for a free five but people do man it's awesome i'm glad they do but um it just gives us time to be together that that event is kind of neat in the fact it's not as helter skelter and crazy as those other two where there's a mass of people all out there at once this is that the pie giveaway allows them to come to our office on that event we you know on the pies we do our own customized label you know, Jones team and all that for just a little more branding. There again, it's just about them. We try to take the emphasis off us and uh, put it on them. And I think that's that's been huge for us. I think as an industry, we have been so, the 90s, I would say, and even early 2000s, everything was so agent-centric. You know, I'm number one, I'm this, I'm that. Every agent in town was number one, you know. I mean, it was just, it got crazy you know i'm i'm the number one agent who drives a green cadillac over the age of 50 i mean there was some reason they were number one and i think the public's tired of that i think the public i think with now being in the information age and with all the information at our fingertips everything's become more customer centric and i think the more you can add value to a person's life the more help you are to them the more that they'll come back and people want to do business with people they know like and trust well, the only way for them to get to know you, like you, and trust you is you got to build a relationship. You know, you got to earn that. And so we feel like these events help us do that. On the bowling event, you said you worked the room. Are you able to talk to everybody in the room during those two hours? I probably don't talk to everybody, but I come pretty daggum close. I, I usually at least get around everybody. You know, I may go over there, maybe eight people bowling, and I may go over and, you know, just kind of ham it up with all of them. How you guys doing? What's going on? Who's winning? All right. And then, you know, kind of pick out a few that I can kind of hone in on. I don't get a chance to have like a conversation with everybody, but I definitely try to make myself where I'm pretty close or touching everybody. And at the end, you said you give a speech. How long is that speech? Man, it's quick. It's probably two or three minutes. And then we start doing door prizes. And the speech is just, it's just I don't script it. It's from the heart. And basically, it just talks about how much we appreciate them. And we do this with no hidden agenda. We do this just to say thank you. We do this because we are in a referral business. 
I do use the word referral quite a bit, but I do that because a lot of them have referred us business that are in that room, and a lot of them that haven't are probably sitting there going, well, damn, I need to refer him somebody, you know, so, so just, I do that to just say thank you for your referrals, thank you for your business, it's the lifeblood of our business, without referrals, we can't have these parties, we're not in business, so thank you, and um, now let's give away some prizes, you know, it's that, it's that simple. You also mentioned promotion, how do you get people there, how do you notify them? That's a great question, and that's that's another thing. When you have three events every year, it gives you many opportunities to touch your database, even if they don't come. We first send out a, the email, save a date. Then we send out an email where they can sign up. Then we send out a card invitation of where they can sign up. They can either call or they can go to the site on the card. And then... We have the event, so we touch them two or three, probably three or four times before the event, and then we have the event, so if they come to the event, that's another time we touch them, and then we send a thank you, and we'll send pictures and an email blast to everybody, even if they didn't come or not, just kind of saying thank you, we had a great event, if you didn't make it this year, please come next year, you know, blah, 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 and then, um, so we touch them again, you know, there, and then we, we do all the we do a lot of Facebook pictures on our fan page and all that kind of stuff, and I think that carries a lot of weight. I get a lot of I get a lot of conversations in in town after we had those events from people who just saw it on Facebook that they maybe weren't even a past client. They would just said, "Hey, man, that's a cool thing you did for your clients. That's awesome, you know." And 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 I think that that carries an impact because you know we're doing these things all years all year long, and with social media, other people can see that. I would think that it would lend itself to say, hey, man, that's a good group of people to do business with. Man, you know, my agent doesn't do that, <laughs> you know, those kind of things. So we kind of try to tie it all in. But by having so many events, having three different events, just the event or the pie giveaway is going to probably touch them, you know, five or six times just through the event. So with the three events, you're touching them maybe 15 times a year just with the three events? Just the three events. And I think it shows goodwill. Even the people that can't make it, the fact you're inviting them, I think is a positive thing. Did you mention you have a registration or a sign-up so you know how many people are going to show up? Yeah, we do. And it gives us a good head count, especially for the barbecue because of the food. But, uh, yeah, I mean, usually some people, and it usually is a pretty good indicator. You'll have some people that show up that didn't call in, and then you'll have some that just didn't make it. So it usually... About ten percent, ten to ten to fifteen percent of the people you send the stuff to actually participate. During these events, do you have your staff helping you run the event? Yeah, in fact, my personal assistant uh, Michelle Bufford, she she really could be slash event coordinator. She pretty much coordinates those things, and she does an unbelievable job. But all my people are required to be there. They all want to be there. They work the room just like I do. You know, they, they go around and talk to people. A few of uh, the administration people in our office will kind of help them, you know, register them to get in. And the rest of us that are more in the production side of the business will kind of work the room and, you know, kiss babies and shake hands and all that stuff. Do you all have checklists that you use to organize this? Does, I assume you have some kind of checklist to make sure it all stays straight. Yeah, I'm assuming she has something because it always gets done. And quite honestly, I just have to show up and not screw it up. Kiss some babies. Yeah, kiss babies and talk to people and, and just smile and have a good time. I mean, we're there to have a good time. So we talked about the first event. 
the bowling. You've also mentioned you have these other two events. Let's talk about the barbecue for a minute. You said you, you do it at a park. It sounds like a larger production. You've got all these toys for the kids to play on. How many people show up to the barbecue? About the same number. I think we had 300 this year. Now, the only difference is with the bowling, most people show up on the front end, all kind of come in together, so to speak, and they're there together for two hours because all the games are wide open for the kids. You know, they can play them as much as they want. The park, they come a little more scattered. It's about a three-hour. I think we give them from like 11 to 2. So they just kind of come here and there. So uh, it's a little bit different in that regard. And it's tough. Like, I never really have an opportunity to have a speech in front of everybody that's there, as I do at the bowling alley. But it's a little bit more lower key where I can sit down and talk to them more one-on-one because they're eating while the kids are playing, and, and there's not as many there at once. So I have a little bit more time to kind of one-on-one with everybody. And usually at the barbecue, I can pretty much talk to everybody. Is that also on a Sunday? No, it's on a Saturday. It's on a Saturday midday, and we do it at a park where there's a lot of baseball fields kind of behind us. And so, because a lot of people that time of year in May, the kids are playing baseball, they're running around, they're doing their thing. So it gives them a nice little, you know, break they can take and go grab grab some food and have some fun. And, you know, the only deal on that is, you know, weather is a huge deal. So we got to have... Good weather. We, we've we had a couple years where we've never had a downpour, thank God, but we have had a year uh, where it was a little sketchy, like a little, you know, drizzling, kind of overcast, and, and your and your numbers just aren't as good on those days. But we it's under a big pavilion, so, you know, we do have some shelter. Now, you mentioned that for both the bowling and the barbecue, you have about 300 to 400 people show up. Are these the same three to 400 people, or are you attracting a different group of people out of your list? The core, I would say, and I don't have a number, but I would say probably half kind of come to, you know, both of them, and then it's a different half. You know what I mean? It's just, it's kind of miss and match. Because, you know, we're sending this thing to, to you know, to 1,500, 2,000 people. You know, it's just a lot of times it's who can do it then, you know. We try our best as agents here, you know, to call kind of our, what I, we call it our, our target 25. But those are those 25 people that are just great advocates for you. And your target 25 could be 50. You know, it'd be great if it's 100. But those are the people that that just day in, day out send you referrals. I mean, they go out of their way to send you referrals. We try our best to call all those people. And just personally say, hey, man, you know, y'all better get there. Please be there. I want to see you, you know. And and so those kind of people usually show up. And then it's just kind of a hodgepodge of everybody else who can make it and who can't. That's what I was wondering. If this core 150 people that are coming to both events, if they're your largest or best referrers. Yes, yes. Those are the people usually we're that we have such a relationship with that, you know, we're calling them especially to say, hey, man. Y'all are going to be there, right? Because, man, I've got four kids. I know how life is. I get invited to all kinds of stuff. And, and you know, uh, it's so easy to blow things off because, you know, you know, kids events, you got, you know, my weekends, I mean, I'm running from ball field to ball field to birthday party to, you know, and I know that's how a lot of people are, you know. And so sometimes you just have to call them and say, hey, man, are you going to be there? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, we got something about that, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, oh. 
yeah, man. I said, well, I want you there. I really do. I want to see you. So those are the people that we, you know, we definitely want them there. And so we we make a little bit better effort of trying to get them there. This barbecue, you mentioned you don't get to make a speech. Do you do any kind of raffle or giveaway there? No, at the barbecue, we don't. The barbecue is a little more laid back because it's a little more scattered. It's more about just, we have music playing. I'm, I love to have, you know, just good music in the background and, and just kind of, you know, just have just a great day and more laid back. And normally the scene is the kids will eat something real quick and then they're running and they're playing. And the parents will kind of chill for, you know, half hour to 45 minutes up there just kind of hanging out at the picnic tables under the pavilion eating. And that's where we're talking to them while the kids are playing. And, you know, they don't have to worry. They, they're all in sight. And that's just a real good time to just, you know, be relaxed and just talk about life, you know, and what's going on in their life, you know. And we try to focus everything on them. We try to ask a lot of questions, you know, forward-based questions, forward, you know, friends, occupation, recreation, and dreams. You know, how's your job? What's going on there? How's family? What's who's what? Who's doing what? Who's in school where? You know, what? How's your golf game? Are you guys still thinking about starting your own business? Whatever, you know, just stuff like that. Just nothing real. It's nothing real systematic, or there's not a big angle. It's more about just saying, we appreciate you guys. We want to do something for you. Do you have a, a check-in table when they come in or, or hand out name tags? Yeah, we'll we'll still hand out name tags just to kind of help us. But, yeah, it's very similar to Bowling. Look at them on the list, name tag them. If they aren't on the list or somehow didn't RSVP, we'll just ask them, now, who did, who did you work with? You know, because usually it's the girls at the front. Now, who did you work with? And they'll, they'll, you know, they'll tell us or they'll say Tommy invited me or, you know. Sometimes it may not be people we worked with. could be, you know, it could be just a sphere of influence type person we've invited. And they'll usually identify. And so we'll make a little code on there so I have an idea who it is. But pretty much the same process there. What is the cost of putting on this barbecue? It's a little bit less than the bowling event. Actually, it's about the same. It's around three grand. Both of them run me three to four grand. And the big cost on the barbecue is the the blow ups. You know, I think those are about fifteen hundred. The food's about a thousand, and then you know, miscellaneous. You know, five hundred here or there. When you say blow ups, you mean these bouncy toys the kids can climb in and bounce around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The big slides they go down, and the ones they can go in and you know play on the balls, and then the, they've got about three of those. And usually we'll either do we'll do three blow ups, and we'll do a, like a rock wall or a mechanical bull, something a little different. Let's talk about that pie giveaway. Yeah. How many pies do you give away that day? Usually around three hundred, and about forty people don't show up. They forget. So I usually I'm usually running around town handing out pies to people. Okay, so anybody that doesn't show up, you go bring the pie to them. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. If they don't show up, because, you know, it's too hard to try to do all that. I'll I'll take the pies, and uh, I'll take them to, to, like, good referral people. You know, like, uh, there's a Honda dealership here in town that, uh, man, those guys, they, they always call us to buy houses, and uh, we've gotten in real good over there. So I'll I'll drop five or six off over there to those guys, and I'll drop five or six. Because usually it's at the – I don't know what I have until it's over, so I'm just kind of – I want to keep the pies fresh, so I usually just run around town and drop them off to people that have been good to us, maybe the mortgage company, uh, the title company, uh, 
businesses where the owners refer to us a lot of you know business things like that. What day of the week do you do the pie giveaway? Tuesday before Thanksgiving. The Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Uh huh. So a lot of people are probably off work. What hours are you doing that? All day, from eight to five. Anytime from eight to five, they can come get them. You have to know how many pies to get. Is there a registration process there? Yeah, yeah. They go to our, our website, or they can call in, and they we give them two options: uh, apple or pumpkin. They um, just tell us which one they want, and then we just make sure we order enough to fulfill. And I usually order just to be safe, you know, twenty or thirty extra. And I think we got the pies. We we first year we did it. We went through a bakery, and it was like nine bucks a pie. And then we went through Publix. We got it down to like four ninety nine, or maybe maybe four bucks. And the, and they were just as good, in my opinion. And um, so that helped cut our cost. Publix is your local grocery store. Yes, sir. Yeah, Publix is a grocery store based out of Florida, new, newer to our area, but they do a good job. How much advance notice do you have to give the bakery or the grocery store in order to do 300-plus pies? About a week, I think. And so we, we give them deadlines that we have to put our order in by such and such. Please let us know what you want. And that's why I order a few more, because there's always people that come in after the fact. Then you get the pies and you put your, your fancy label on them? Uh-huh. We'll do something maybe with a little bit of Thanksgiving. You know, we're thankful for you or, you know, John Jones Real Estate, put our logo on there. Nothing real, nothing real crazy, just pretty simple. You've got three core events during the year. They've been working for you. How long have you been doing these events? About three years. I'd always gone to all these mastermind conferences and hear about these people doing client appreciation parties and always said, yeah, it's great. I want to do that. And I'd come home and I'd never do it. A lot of that was because times were good, you know. Things were great, rolling, you know. And I just forgot that these are the people that are making times good, you know. And unfortunately, it took a downturn in the market for me to to realize that. But um, I hope I never forget it. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. You would label these as a success, that these have been generating business. You've been thanking them and business is coming back in to pay for these events, correct? No, no doubt about it. You know, I would say all three events probably cost me about $10,000 total in time and effort, but 10000 bucks monetarily. And, you know, you can easily get enough referrals out of one event that covers the whole thing twice, you know, the whole, all three of them twice. So, heck yeah, it does. And really, I try not to go into it with that attitude of, will this pay for itself? I try to go into it with that attitude of just, I just want to help people. I just want to add value to their life, you know, especially the last few years. You know, people have been down. You got a little family out here that has hit a rough patch, and you can throw a free event for them to take their kids and let them see their kids smile and play that maybe they couldn't do for themselves at that point in time. 
And I know we got a lot of people like that. I mean, I've had people come up and say that, you know, John, thank you so much. We needed this. Because if a, if a family of four goes to the bowling alley or a family of six goes to a bowling alley on their own or go to a movie, you know, they're going to spend a couple hundred bucks. And this is all free. So that that's kind of a cool thing. And that's the kind of attitude I try to take, you know. I'm just I'm just trying to add value to their lives and give them something fun to do. And the rest of it usually takes care of itself. You've been generating over 60% of your business from these past clients and sphere of influence. You've talked about your, your parties, your client parties and events. Are you doing anything else to stay in front of your database each year? We try to call all our clients on their birthday, and we try to call all the clients on their, their anniversary of their home. And it's just a real simple phone call. Happy birthday. <laughs> Hope you're having a great day. Just wanted to tell you I'm thinking about you. Anniversary, hey, how you guys doing? Today's your, your fifth anniversary in that home. Uh, it's hard to believe, isn't it? You know, you know, how's the home doing? How's it performing for you? You'll get referrals out of that call. Well, we're about to bust at the seams, John. I'm glad you called. That just gives us two key dates to kind of talk to them throughout the year. With our target 25 people, we're trying to talk to them a little bit more and actually trying to have two sit-downs with them a year, either you know a meal or coffee or something. I try to gift those people every year like with a book or or something. I think last year we gave them a a little book. Um, There was a book I read, and it was just a real simple read called Lead for God's Sake, and it's just a real neat little fable-type book about leadership that I would take with me when I go have coffee or have lunch and just just have a good sit-down and just, you know, see what's going on in their life, but just trying to keep that, that relationship with those people that are sending us the most business. The top 25... Is this your personal group of 25, John? Yes. Every one of us has a personal target 25. I have four other people in my office that are what I call producing agents. So we all have our own top 25, or we call it target 25. And the target 25 was a name given because we wanted to identify 25 people if we could. Now, it could be 50. It could be 36. It could be 16. But the key to this group of people is these are people that have shown over and over they're because everybody's built different. And as you as you know, there's there's some people out there that they'll refer business if, if they're asked, you know, if somebody goes, do you know a good real estate agent? And they'll go, yeah, um, yeah, call John Jones. But then there's this other group of people, and they're, my, they're the minority. They're the minority. And um, I read a book by Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote Outliers, Tipping Point, Blink. I can't remember which book it was, but he had a fancy name for these people, and I'd never heard the name before, and I can't remember it right now. But basically, the, the people that he identified were people that go out of their way. They're information givers. They're people that, and there's a few people that I can think of in my life, like if I need to know where to go stay at a certain place, I just know I need to call Lynn. Because she knows all that stuff. And she's like just one of these people that goes out of her way to help people and give them information. She's a source of knowledge. And the, our target 25, we try to identify them as those type of people. They're people that if they hear somebody even talking about real estate in their office, they call John Jones. Here's his number. You know, they're those type of people. Because those type of people, are they're not worth just one referral a year. Those people could be worth five or six referrals a year. So... You know, or at least 
two or three. So if you can find 25 of those people, those are the people that we really want to try to identify as connectors or people that we gotta we gotta have in our we gotta make sure we're staying in front of those folks because they are they are they are people that other folks trust for their opinion and they go out of their way to give it and they're not as easy to identify as you think they are. How do you identify them? You just use your gut. They've sent you a couple leads. Sometimes they're the people you don't think about. They're not like. A lot of times, you know, if I was listening to this call, I would think I would be thinking, "Oh, they're people that I know really well." Sometimes they're not. They can they can be a client that we just sold a house to from Wisconsin, you know. But all of a sudden, they're throwing business at us, and you're like, "Goodness gracious!" You know, <laughs> you know what are you? You know, you're almost surprised by it. But then you realize they are just they're those type of people, and those are people that you got to identify. And when you when you find one, you, you lock onto them and, and make sure they know you appreciate them and what they do and their opinions and and you go a little extra for those folks because they can make your business. And we've really gone out of our way to try to figure out who those advocates are, you know, and identify them and let's have a systematic way to to stay in touch with them and and to uh, make sure we're we're having not just phone calls with them but we're having face to faces with those folks. John, is there anything that you do for someone that sends you a referral? Do you send them out a thank you card right when the event happens? Do you call them up? Do you send them a card to go to Starbucks? Is there anything that you do at the moment they're giving you a referral? I've done all that kind of stuff in the past, but really I love writing thank you notes. And I I know to me a, a handwritten thank you note means something to me. And I really try to do that more than I do anything. I will, if it's somebody I really want to talk to, I'll call them and just say, hey, you don't have a clue how much it means to me, Would you know. But more than it, it kind of depends on the personality of the person. But uh, I think a handwritten thank you note carries so much weight. And when I'm really in my groove, which I struggle with being in my groove, but this morning I did it, I try to write three handwritten thank you notes every day. I do it for a couple reasons. One is I want to thank somebody. And number two is if I start my day that way, I start it in, in gratitude, you know, being thankful, and my day just seems to go a little better. I can't tell you how many times that I've written a handwritten thank you note and somebody comes up and says, thank you. You know, they're thanking me for the thank you note. They're like, you know, that really meant a lot because I took the time. It wasn't an email. It wasn't a text. It was me sitting down, especially in the, the world we live in right now where everything's instantaneous, we could all thank somebody in five seconds with a text of taking that time and writing out a note and, and putting some special special words in there. You've mentioned a lot of different ways that you're touching base with your sphere of influence and your past clients. Do you have a goal of trying to contact them a certain number of times a year? Yeah, I would like to hit them about you know at least 24 times a year. Through the events, we're hitting them a good 15, and then we're we're sending them a, a, an e-newsletter every month, so there's 12. We're trying to call them at least twice, so that's 29. Are we always successful in doing that? Absolutely not, calling them. I mean, I'd like to tell you everybody in my office calls all their, all their people, and I do it every day of the week. I don't, but I try my best to, and that's what's so cool with technology. You know, every day I wake up, there's a list on my calendar of birthdays so I can just hit them throughout the day. 
But we're probably hitting them, I would say, at least 30 times a year with stuff. And I, and I feel like you ought to at least hit them 24. So we're trying to kind of – but, you know, an email newsletter, let's face it, we all get that stuff from – we all get spammed and popped on all that stuff. And, you know, I don't know how much weight that really carries. So I think a phone call on a special day or a phone call just to say, hey, what's going on, just thinking about you, is huge. When you have a database as large as ours, it does make it make it kind of hard sometimes to hit everybody. John, you also mentioned you're getting referrals from other realtors. Talk to us about that. Are these local realtors or these national realtors referring people in? Some local, some national. Just through the, I have not made a big emphasis on, like I don't have a big database of national realtors that I send this to. And probably part of the reason is because of my market is kind of a sub-market of Nashville. If I was a Nashville realtor, I would probably work that a little bit harder. But I prefer to kind of target on one geographical area. But I do get a handful of referrals from agents across the country through just my contacts of being involved in star power and, and various things like that. But I do also try to work with some Nashville agents. A lot of Nashville agents will come down here to sell our stuff or list our homes, whereas a lot of Rutherford County agents like me, I don't really go up. Like if I have a Nashville buyer that wants to be in Nashville, north side of Nashville, or, you know, 30, 40 minutes away from my market, I'm going to refer that up there. And so I do have some arrangements or some, some relationships up there where we'll get kind of local referrals. We usually typically do 25%, which is what I usually do with a national referral. But it's not a huge part of my business, but it is, you know, it's a handful you know, of deals every year. So you're not actively promoting that. That's just kind of happening. It just kind of happens. I haven't made a big point of emphasis on it. Most referrals I get, and I did not probably put this down there because there wasn't a spot for it when we talked, but I am a Dave Ramsey ELP. Dave Ramsey is a guy that he's a national, has a national syndicated radio show, and a uh, actually he's on Fox News where they basically just film his radio show. Uh, he's a financial expert, or really more of, yeah, he's a financial expert, I would say, but he's more of helping people get out of debt and just good common sense, ways to handle their money and, and, and you know, cut up credit cards and all that stuff. And believe it or not, he started in Nashville, you know, 20 years ago and had a little local show, and I remember it, and then he became this big national deal. He's written a lot of books and he's very successful and he has a really good following. And um, he has a thing called Endorsed Local Provider where he uh, he has an insurance, real estate, mortgages, where if he deems you worthy and they go through a pretty extensive interview process, you can become one of his endorsed local providers. We get a lot of, uh, you know, I'm going to say a lot, but I think I did 15 to 20, probably 15 to 20 transactions last year because of, through through that network they're good people good conservative you know good they're good they're good leads so i've done that and that's been successful and there there is a fee for that i'm not really supposed to disclose it but um there is there is a fee but much 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 like a referral fee you give to an agent and i'm glad to pay it and it's good and you know it's it's a good piece of business and that's uh, getting on a list and then these referrals happen are you advertising on the radio with Dave, or is this something that's kind of happening in the background? If you listen to his radio show, he'll throughout his radio show, he'll go, you know, if you're looking for a, 
an individual in your area that that is you know an expert in their field, please go to our site and you know put in your you know they go into site and put in their zip code and stuff and and if you know he carries so much weight if he endorses you it's it, it's kind of like getting a good referral because it's like if you walk in the door and you've been endorsed by them, you don't have to sell yourself so much you know because they already kind of trust you. I never realized how big he got, and I guess because he was so close to me that I didn't realize how big he got nationally and how much people really follow his principles, and uh, it kind of blew me away, to be honest with you. But well, I really, we really enjoy being a part of it. He does a heck of a job, and they don't just take anybody. I mean, they went through an extensive interview with me, and I had to fill out a lot of paperwork, and there was two or three phone calls, and they asked the right questions. Um, I was very impressed I mean, put this way, if I was just an ordinary person and I uh, I was moving to Los Angeles, I'd be very comfortable going and looking at whoever he's recommending, because I know what they put me through to to become one of the, to, to become one of their providers. So uh, I was very impressed by that. I was glad to see it, to be honest with you. You've been closing three, four hundred units a year. I know you're not doing that by yourself. You've got a, a team. Let's talk about your team for a minute. Could you walk through your team members, not by their name, but by their position and what they're doing on your team? Could you tell us about them? Sure. My first hire back in, I think it was about 98, was just a personal assistant. And she's still with me today. And she's become more than just a personal assistant. She's also kind of our bookkeeper. She's my event coordinator. She's my right hand and my left hand, and she has been awesome. She's watched this business grow with me and watched me grow in a lot of you know different ways and areas of my life. Uh, so we have uh, her, uh, and she's what I would call my, my personal assistant slash bookkeeper. Then I have a gentleman that I mentioned earlier, uh, Joe, and Joe has evolved into uh, being our distressed property expert or manager, whatever you want to call it. And he handles all our REO business, and he handles all of the short sale business. He's a very systematic person, very organized, perfect for that job, unlike myself. Uh, I tried to work one short sale one time, and, and if I, they should have sued me for malpractice because, I mean, I was... I was just everywhere, you know. I didn't. <laughs> it was crazy. So he's great at that. I have four. They're all guys. I've had girls in this role, but that are sales consultants. Uh, and the reason I call them that is because they list as well. I started my model with just buyer specialists, and I did all the listings. But now uh, most of my people have been with me so long that I feel very comfortable with them going out and list property. And the listings are the lifeblood of our business. So if we can multiply the number of people out trying to list and acquire property to sell, uh, I think it makes the company better. There's four of those people. Then I have a full-time closing coordinator, and she basically takes the deal. Uh, once we get a contract uh, in place, whether it's a listing or a, a buyer, she takes that deal and kind of walks it to closing. The agent is still involved in the deal. There's red flags that pop up. They get involved. They handle all inspections and inspection negotiation. But her job is mainly just to kind of be the liaisons and stay ahead of the deal and talk to the other agents and make sure things are happening the way they're supposed to be happening. And if they aren't, she kind of says, hey, hey, John, we got a problem. Or, hey, John, I'm having a problem getting this, and I'll step back in and see what's going on. Then we have a full-time listing coordinator slash Internet expert. That used to be two positions. 
but we got all the internet stuff pretty much systemized, so it made it a lot easier. So our listing coordinator can handle that as well. Her job is to, once we list the home, she goes out, takes the pictures, puts the sign in the yard. All our pictures are professionally done. We hired a professional photographer for about a year, about five or six years ago. And we basically just, after watching them for a year, we basically just went out and bought all the equipment that they used and run things through Adobe Premiere to make everything look really nice. Use the wide lenses, the high dollar equipment uh, to make our photography look professional. And she also does all the uh, internet ID Act, you know, wherever you put that stuff in and it goes to all the big sites. And we use Real Pro Platinum for all database stuff. So it kind of handles itself. Once a lead comes in to our site, it basically sends it out to the agent who's responsible. I can see that uh, as well every day and look at, you know, who's gone in and follow up and who hasn't. We try to make a rule that if there's a phone number there that we're calling them back within an hour, and if that's not happening, then we'll pop that lead to someone else. And I'm the I'm the rainmaker, so to speak. I still am very productive. I still mainly work with listings. I might work with a handful of buyers in a given year if it's an investor that I've had you know a long-term relationship with, or you know just a real special client that I I feel like I have to work with. I will, but for the most part, all my buyer leads go to to one of the one of the sales consultants. Are all these people paid on a commission or a salary, or, or how are they paid? The administration people are all paid on a salary with some incentive. Like our closing coordinator will get, you know, so much per deal. She'll get a salary and then so much per deal on, um, I think we give her $50 per closing. So four of my people are, are kind of salary-based. Our, our distressed property manager, he's on a base plus incentive. And then, but all our salespeople are day in, day out sales consultants, and they are all commission based. How do you pay your sales consultants? Is it different between whether they're working with a buyer or a seller? Uh, it used to be. I try to keep everything simple, and I try to keep it where these guys can make a living, you know, because I realize if they can't, they're not going to be here. So we, you know, I probably, you know, would get scoffed at by most of the experts out there. But I pay 50-50 across the board. And a lot of people would say, you know, that's too much, probably. And, you know, I don't know. In our market, with average price, 150 you know, I think that plays a big a big role in what you got to pay people. And um, and the longevity of my people being with me, um, I used to get that all the time when I'd go to seminars. Man, you're paying too much. You're paying too much. And then I would talk to them, and I'd say, well, what are you paying? And they would tell me, you know, some low number, and I i try to dig a little deeper, and i go, well, how many you know, do you have? How long have they been with you? And they would roll through these people, like, constantly, you know? And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want these people with me. I don't want to have to train somebody every three or four or five months, you know, or two or three different people coming and going. So I went with that model several years ago, and it's worked well for us. I keep people for the most part. I mean, we still have some People evolve and go on and do other things, but sales consultants I have right now, one of them's been with me 10 years, one of them's been with me four, one of them's been with me three, one of them's a newer guy. He's been with me about a year. But you talk to a lot of companies uh, or a lot of teams out there, nobody's ever been with them 10. You know what I mean? It's just like every other day somebody's coming and going. 
So I, I like the fact that they're with me and there's a lot of trust and they keep they build their business. They get better every year, typically. Um, so I believe that I'll be rewarded for that. Is everyone on the team licensed? Everybody except my listing coordinator as of right now. She's a newer hire, so I will try to get her licensed. I like to, I like for them to get licensed, and I usually make that investment, uh, the financial investment. And um, I, I just I don't know. I think it's I think it's a good thing to, for them to be more vested into the to the industry. John, you mentioned that you're paying your people really well. There's probably people out there wondering, are you profitable? Well, yeah, we are. We we, <laughs> we haven't filed bankruptcy yet. Thought about it a couple times. Yeah, we are. We are. In fact, you know, really, all even throughout this whole downturn, we've remained profitable as a real estate company. My biggest mistakes were on the separate from the real estate company. They were, I shouldn't say they were mistakes. They were um, my biggest challenges were getting into the development. You know, when this thing hit, I was in three developments. I was a half partner in one, and I was a third partner in two others. And these were land, residential uh, subdivisions. And two of them kind of floundered. One of them, thank the good Lord, did well even through all this. And if it hadn't, it it might have it might have sunk me. It would have sunk me. You know, if it had if it had stayed on the same course as the other two, I would have thrown up the white towel, you know, several years ago because I couldn't have, I couldn't have withstood it. You know, I would have had to do something. But it, it thrived through this, and it kind of kind of saved me, to be honest. It was able to do well enough that I was able to kind of feed the other two, and now the other two are doing better, and I can kind of see light at the end of the tunnel. How big are these developments? The one I have the most interest in, thank God, that's done the best, it is a 300-lot development that I was about halfway through when all this hit. And I was just going into another phase, and all this kind of hit, and you know, I've got this big development loan out there of a couple million bucks, and all this hit, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, what the heck, you know, and and um, and we still sold lots out there. It's just that we fortunate enough to be in a desirable area that withstood even the reset. It did okay. And I had to change the way I did things. Whereas before, if you bought lots in my subdivision, you had to be one of our builders. You had to let us list them. Blah blah blah. Uh, when all this thing hit, you know, I sold to anybody that would buy a lot. I mean, they had honored the restrictions of the subdivision. You know, I had to prove their plans and all that, but. I mean, Charles Manson could have come and bought a lot, and I would have said, okay, Charlie, which one do you want? You know, I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't the time to be picky or choosy. So by doing that and opening that up and changing my mindset on some things, we were able to get through that. The other two, one's got the potential. We just started it. It's, it's going to be 364 lots, but we were kind of right in our first phase when all this went south. And I have two real good partners, and um, they were able to withstand it. That was another thing. I had good partners in all these deals that were able to withstand this because, you know, if one partner goes down, usually it's going to leave the other two holding the bag. And thank God all my partners were able to uh, withstand this. So that was a great lesson to me. And I was just kind of fortunate that I had good, you know, if you're going into something pretty big, make sure you have good partners. And they were all good and they were all, uh, they didn't try to point fingers. They all got it. It's the market, and it is what it is, and we're just going to have to figure out how to weather through it. And um, I was just grateful that during the good years, I had I'd bought a lot of real estate. 
and you know I hated to sell some of it during the times when I had to sell it, but then again I was thankful I had it to sell it. So uh, I sold some stuff and and you know created some cash and it got me through it. And now we're starting to see that I'm not going to say we're through it, but I think we're in our in our local market we are definitely on the other end of it. There's some optimism in the air because I'm going to tell you for four or five years every day. It, there was a new challenge, whether it was just a market challenge or a, a banking challenge with somebody that was had one of our developments or, or we had a lot of rental properties and the banks were kind of saying, hey, y'all got too many rental properties with us. You know, like, well, hell, you gave us the loans. You were begging us, you know. And they said, yeah, but the officers say we can't have this much, so we got to do something. And, you know, you're sitting there going, what the heck am I going to do? I, no other bank's taking these loans right now. We had to sell off some stuff and just work with them and try to remain positive. And I saw so many, I saw a lot of people during this time, uh, especially the builders and some of the developers, you know, just throw in the towel. And the reason I scratch my head on that is because I, I see them back in business doing stuff. And I'm like, well, how did how did they do that? You know, and, and I question whether, you know, they were being maybe honest in their dealings with with the banks and everything. The way I look at it is I signed a note, and I said, by signing that note, I promise to pay you. I'm going to do everything in my damn power to do it. And if the market goes bad and I can't do it anymore, I'll say I can't do it anymore. I'm done, you know. But even if it hurts, I mean, i got to do it. You know, I said I would do it, and that's the way I feel about that, you know. So much of this country, I've seen, you know, specials on strategic default. Well, they're defaulting because their values of their home have been cut in half, but they still have their jobs and they still can make the payment. Well, to me, they got to own that. I can't buy into the fact that, well, you didn't ask for this in this market and this is going to take you 20,000 years to get out of your house. Yeah, but you signed that and said you were going to do it. I just believe that's the right thing to do until you can't do it. Then when you can't do it, you got to do what you got to do. I don't. I don't judge anybody for having to take bankruptcy if they can't pay anymore. I mean, you just can't. But I do have a problem with not honoring your word, you know, if you can if you can physically do it. That's the risk we take as entrepreneurs. When times are good, we went and borrowed the money. Times don't go so good, that's a risk you take. It can really work out good for you or it can it can you know, it can take you down to nothing. John, did you have to go to the banks and do some workouts? No, you know, I never got to that. We tried to keep really good relationships with the banks. There was one bank in particular that was was causing me a little bit of concern because there wasn't. I was hearing what they were kind of doing to some other folks, and I was like, "Holy, holy moly!" If they call this note due, I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. But we just always were real honest with them, and we would try to go meet with them and tell them this is how we're going to do it, and this is what we intend to do. And we had to do some curtailments, and I'm going to tell you that's not a lot of fun when you know they call you and say, "Hey." We've reappraised this deal, and it, it's four hundred thousand dollars less than what you, it was a year ago. So we need a hundred grand out of you guys, and you know you're you're having to come to the table with money, and you're trying to save money. <laughs> you know you're, but I'm gonna tell you, God met me every step of the way. It was like when I needed money, an opportunity. I had a commercial building with with two partners, and it, I had about two hundred thousand equity in it, and. All this was going down with some banks uh, needing curtailments and 
paying taxes and all this. So I needed I needed some money that I just didn't have, you know. And I was thinking, where in the world am I going to come up with this money, you know? Because I, I can't sell this rental property, you know. I mean, it's people are living in the homes, you know, and they're all separate. And, you know, good Lord, you know, I could sell them all. And, yeah, yeah I mean, I could sell several and get this money. But they just, you know, it's hard to go sell rental property when people are living in them. You're going to get investor prices and all that stuff. So about that same time, you know, one of my, my partners said, hey, man, uh, would you be interested in selling your your share to the other partner? He's He would like to buy it if you would want to sell it. You know, we love having you as a partner, but, you know, just – throwing it out there and I was like, let me think about it, you know. <laughs> Hell yeah. So I mean, it was just unbelievable. That happened twice. That happened twice when I needed cash infusions of just kind of partners coming to me saying, Hey, if you're ever interested in selling this, so and so would want to buy it and and it just worked out. And I'm I'm telling you, I just I've got a I've got a strong faith and I just believe that it it was God just blessing me. Sounds like a lot of the investments that you've made are with partners. How are you picking a partner? Really, all my partners that I have are people, with the exception of one, partnership, are people that I've known a long time, and I know them, and I just, I know they're good people. Now, I have a lot of stuff individually, but any partner I have, the number one characteristic I look for is, um, are they honest? Are they good people? You know, they got integrity. And if they got that, and I mean, obviously, I got to look at, you know, do you have any money? Can you be a partner? You know, but the main thing I look for is integrity. So most of them have been just relationships I've had over the years with people I've known for, for years. We know each other and we know we kind of grew up with each other, so to speak. And we know we're, we know, we know each other's secrets, so to speak. You know, we know, we know who each other is and we know that, that we're going to be there. You've mentioned that you've been making these investments. I assume you're making them for your future. You've also mentioned you have properties on your own. Do you own individual rentals? Yeah, I own I own about 10 single families just by myself. Then I own with a partner, the guy I mentioned earlier, Joe. We probably own about, I don't know, 30 or 40. I can't keep count. Together, it's 50-50. Rental properties, all single family. So, and you know, we had to sell a lot of those. We were probably up for 60, 60 or 70. We had to sell a lot of them to appease the banks. At you know, We had to sell them in this market, which, which kind of stinks. Had you acquired most of those prior to the meltdown or during the meltdown? Unfortunately, most of them before. I would have loved to have been in position to be buying stuff right and left. And we have bought a few things, you know, during this this meltdown. But... Nothing the way we were buying them before. We had a real good system, and we were buying a lot of stuff. And and you know, and and thank God we were buying them at decent prices. So even during the meltdown, I mean, we weren't underwater because we weren't. You know, that's one that's one thing I would tell to anybody listening is you're in the real estate business. That's to me what you need to be investing in. That's what you know. You have many opportunities throughout the year if you look and really try to identify those. Take advantage of your knowledge. Take advantage of what you know. And uh, I've done so much better. Even with all this stuff that we're talking about, it's all doom and gloom. But still, the net sum of it is I've done so much better in investing in real estate than I've ever done in the stock market. Because I don't know a daggum thing about the stock market. And I love my stockbroker because we played high school football together. 
but he doesn't know a hell of a lot about the stock market. <laughs> I tell him every chance I get. But uh, you know what I mean? It, it, it's just like if I can go over to that three bedroom, two bath, one car garage, I can. I know it's still there. I can go touch it. They send me a check every month. I can drive by it. It's there. You know, I it's it's there. But that dadgum WorldCom stock I bought back in the heyday, it was all based on a pack of lies. I don't know anything about WorldCom. I don't know anything about Microsoft. I don't know anything about Apple other than it's going through the roof. But I just don't know it like I know real estate. So why wouldn't I invest in real estate? And even in the developments, you know, I'm telling you the doom and gloom stories, but I did real well on all of it during the heyday. You know, I made a lot of I made some really good money on the developments during the heyday that more than is offset what I've had to spend the last few years. So was it dumb to be in them? Not really. My timing wasn't, you know, it just what it, it, I just need to be solid enough to hang if, if times went bad, and thank God I was. These 40-plus single-family homes that you own, are they all cash-flowing positive? Yes. So that's what's helped. Yeah, it is. It is. And that, that was kind of the rub with the bank. I was like, man, these things are cash-flowing great. What I mean, what's... What's, and when I say cash flowing, we we came from a mindset when we bought them, and I'm not saying this is the right mindset. I'm I'm just saying this was what it was, is we wanted to be able to put things on 15 year notes, and have them pay for themselves in 15. You know what I'm saying? So there was always a little bit of positive cash flow, but it wasn't a ton. Like if we'd put them on 20 or 30 year note, but we were big on debt reduction. It's not like it's just unbelievable cash flow every month. It basically takes care of itself with some left over for repairs, but we're paying the suckers down. You know, in a few years, it'll be worth it'll be worth it. Looking back, might have done it a little different, but once we got into this thing and the banks got so goofy with all their regulations, we couldn't really adjust the the terms. You know, most of them wouldn't do it. Most of them didn't want it. Most of them want us to get it. Guys, we got way too much stuff with you guys. You know, and that's what was kind of perplexing is, well, we didn't hold a gun to your head. You you, you came to us. <laughs> you, you wanted this business. Yeah, I know, but the auditors, you know. So because of all the trouble they got in with the people that didn't pay them, they hammer the people that can pay them. And that's where it gets a little bit, that's where you get a little bit, uh, it gets frustrating, you know. But that's just the world we live in. Who's managing the properties? We manage, and when I say we, my personal assistant manages about seven of my personals. And then the rest of them, including the ones I own 50-50, are managed by an outside management company that we have a good relationship with. I've thought about getting in that business, but I just don't think uh, I'm built for it. And uh, I've had people tell me I'm an idiot not to be in it. But there again, even though it's real estate related, it's so opposite, so different than what I do every day, you know? And I just... I just, I'm a big believer in doing what you're good at. John, let's go back to the question of profitability. You, you said that your team, your company is profitable. Could you help us out to kind of get a clearer picture and, and tell us maybe a profit margin as a percentage of your revenues? Yeah, we're probably running about 40% profit of total GCI generated. And back in the heyday, uh, when things were just blowing up, it was probably about 30, and we've gotten more profitable. You know, it sounds like it's not that much, you know. I can remember when my goal as an individual agent was to try to hang on to about 80%, you know, of what I made. But when you run this kind of model and try to do this kind of volume, 
I'd love for it to get to about 50%. That'd be sweet, but I'm okay with 40. I want it to be better, but 40 is better than 30, you know. It's 40% of a bigger pie. Are you taking home more money now than when you were an individual agent? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even through all this crap. Now, I'm not taking as much home. I'm not taking home the money I was taking home in 06 and 07 and 05 and 04, but it's still pretty decent. I mean, it's still it's still enough to where in the area of the country I live in, you know, it's a good living. Now, here's here's the rub. When you get used to making what I was making in those heyday years, you tend to change your lifestyle. And, of course, I have four kids now, okay? That changes your lifestyle whether you want it to or not. So, you know, you make you make some decisions sometimes during those times that if looking back on it, I wish I hadn't made. I was like, you know, did I really need that boat? You know, I really, you know. What do they say? The best two times to have a boat is the day you buy it and the day you sell it. it. You know, stuff like that, you know, that, you know, I was like, man, that wasn't the smartest thing I ever did. But, you know, lake house, got the lake house and all that. And kind of wonder maybe if I should have made some of those decisions. But, you know, I can't change it. Just learn from it and move on, you know. No sense in sitting there crying about it. John, what drives you? You know, I think the main thing that drives me is I have always just wanted to be good at whatever I did. If I'm going to do something, why not try to be good at it or great? I don't say the word great a whole lot because I don't know that I'm great at it. I'm always striving to be great. Now, your things change over the years. Like, I'll be honest with you, when I was younger, you know, 10, 15 years ago, my goal was just, I want to be number one. It's more of an ego-driven thing. Now it's more so, I, I just want to be, I want, you know, I want my family to have a good life and all that good stuff. And But I want my kids to see a dad who got up and went out and tried to do his best. You know, go, he went out and tried to be the best at what he could do. You know, if it's real estate, it's real estate. If it's playing football, I want to try to be the best at what my God-given abilities would allow me to be. So I guess it's just really a, it's not an ego thing anymore. It's more just, if I'm going to do this, why not try to be good at it, great at it, you know? And not so much by numbers anymore either. It's more by just really providing good service and, and, and putting my client in a good position, you know, getting that house sold they need to get sold so they can go to Alabama or wherever they're going or, or getting them out of that bind they're in or working that helping them get done with a short sale so they can take that burden off off of them and avoid foreclosure or just doing right by my client but just doing it well so they go tell somebody, call John, he did us a good job. That that that's more I guess what drives me now than anything. John, why do you think you're successful? You know, I've, I've been asked that question before, and I've been asked that question in the terms of what makes a real estate agent successful, and and I I think there's a, a, a I think the number one key ingredient that I see, like when I go to Star Power events, or when I listen to your tapes, or when I listen to your podcast, I think the one driving factor is because everybody thinks, oh, you, you know, if you're going to be in sales, you have this great personality, and I think I do have a good personality, and I think that helps me. And I think I'm very relational, and I think that helps me. I think people like me, and I think that helps me. But that's not the key. I've seen people that are basically introverts be very good, successful real estate people. 
think the number one ingredient is work ethic. They're willing to get up, and they're willing to go to work, and they're willing to um, do what they got to do to to sell homes. You know, make the phone calls. Everybody's different. I'm somebody that's more like when I started my business. You know, I wasn't a great phone guy. I was not the guy that would be really good at calling expires and calling fizzbos to 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 earn my keep. I was more relational. So what I really did on the onset of my career is I worked a lot of open houses. And a lot of times I worked them for other agents because I didn't even have any, you know, inventory. But I was real good when I could be out in front of people and just meet them and talk to them and just, you know, get to know them. So that's a gift that God's given me. But the key ingredient, I can have the best personality in the world if I don't get out of bed and go get after it. It doesn't it doesn't matter. So I think work ethic and the curiosity to always become, you know, how is how can I be better at this? That's the great thing about the, what you do, Mike, is you've got a platform here if an agent wants to use it for them to just listen to these agents that have done well and have had a lot of success and just just do what they do. Just do what they do. Howard Britton was a big mentor of mine. I fell upon his, I mean, I just, pure luck, I found his stuff and started listening. It's very similar to, to what you do. And I just listened to these people. And I said, this is awesome. They're telling me how to do it. You know, I'm not, I'm not Einstein. I'm not going to figure it out on my own. You know, why not just listen to some of these people that are doing it? If it works in Dayton, Ohio, it probably work in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And I just did it. And I'm so thankful to have that that type of platform or whatever you want to call it to 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 learn from, and that's the same thing you're you're doing for for your clients here is you're just you're just facilitating a lot of great information. You know the amazing thing about real estate is you can listen to fifty of the people you've interviewed, and all fifty of them are doing it different, slightly different. You know you got the Russell Shaws of the world that are doing it by just slamming some commercials on primetime news and it's and the flexible listing program and it works great. And then you got other people doing it different ways. Chad down in uh, Austin, Texas, he's doing it by, sounds like he's a real disciplined human being who works the phones like a maniac. You know, Alan Dom in Philadelphia, to this day, maybe the most successful real estate agent in the history of the world, Still makes 100 calls a day. Totally different than Russell Shaw in Arizona, but still works for both of them. So you just got to figure out what works for you. If expired and FISBOs don't work for you, don't call them. Don't do it. That's not in your wheelhouse. If if throwing parties and, and, and meeting people that way works for you, that's what you need to do. That's how God built you. Go to your strength. I think so many times we try to build our weaknesses up. You know, that's okay. To an extent, but play to your strength. God gave us all unique abilities. Don't try to be something you're not. You're not going to ever be great at it. If you got the strength, you can really be great at that. If you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I would probably tell most new agents to go get on a team, find find a successful team in your area, and get involved with it. See if you can get on with them. Learn the business that way. Learn from somebody that's probably doing a daggum good job. And you'll also learn systems and processes. And you will also have instantaneous business because they're they're creating the leads. 
And you see, there really wasn't teams when I started, so I didn't have that opportunity. But I was fortunate enough to have good mentors in my life. So if you're just hell-bent and determined not to join a team, you want to be an individual, then I would definitely go find a place where you can get trained up, learn this business inside and out, and find find a couple mentors, find some people doing it right, and see if you can get involved in their life and if they'll spend some time with you. I get on these, these type tapes you have. I mean, if these tapes were available when I was a new agent, uh, I would have just I would have just eaten them up, man. I mean, I've always been a big biography guy. You know, like I love to read about people. I don't like fiction as much. I like reading about real-life situations, real stories, real people, whether it was a great coach, Abraham Lincoln, a great leader in our country, whatever, because those stories really appeal to me. And that's kind of what these podcasts are. It's real people doing real things. So to me, it has a lot of credibility. To me, it's like, okay, I can dream now. I can inspire. I can be inspired because this really happened. This is a live human being that really did this somewhere. Okay, it's doable. And I've got to, I'm built that way where I've got I to kind of have somebody say they did it, and then I can go do it. Uh, one of the best investments I ever made, there was a guy selling uh, real estate in Warren, Michigan, by the name of Ralph Roberts. And he wrote this book called Walk Like a Giant, Sell Like a Madman. It was a very simple read. But in the book, he mentioned that he had a shadow program. So this was back when I didn't have 2500 bucks to blow. To go shadow him for a day cost $2,500 plus expenses. This is probably 97-ish, 98-ish. And so I did it. And um, I went up there and spent a day with him. People have asked me, was it worth the 2500 bucks? I said it was worth it 10, 100-fold. And the reason why was what I saw up there was a guy who never had a day of formal college education. He butchered the English language. He's just a good old guy from a hard-working, blue-collar family that, that thought big. He had this team. I, never, I didn't even know what a team was. And I was trying to figure out how in the world somebody sold 600 homes a year. Well, I just went up there and I saw it, and that's all I needed. I was like, okay, he—he, he, you know, he wasn't gifted with some unbelievable mind or you know something like that. You know, we always make excuses why people do well. I couldn't make excuses for him. All, the only excuse I could make is he got up and he did it. He thought about it, he dreamed it, he visioned it, and he did it. He's a man of action. So I just—I needed that for my own self belief system, so that I knew I could come home and do it. And once I saw that, I was like, I can do this. I can at least try, you know. I got a shot. I think sometimes that's just what we need. You know, people need that. John, I've come to the end of my questions. Is there anything else that you would like to say that we haven't talked about? I would just say to agents out there listening, be true to yourself. Figure out who you are, what your unique abilities are. Be true to that. Always... um, I was told something years ago, get out of judgment and get into curiosity. I think so many times in our business, it's kind of competitive business, and it's so easy to judge people, you know, if they're doing well. Oh, well, he, the reason he's doing well is he gets handed all these leads or he's the son of so-and-so or whatever. And I would say get out of that and get into curiosity. Figure out why he's doing that good or she's doing that well. You know, go, go pick their brain. Start getting curious why why they're successful. And I think that's what these tapes do. 
if you're into curiosity, these tapes are going to be huge for you, or these podcasts. It just blows my mind that the stuff that you offer is so readily available for people. they got to take advantage. You're crazy. I can't even remember what it costs. What's the cost from for a year of this? It's a bargain. It's stupid. Cheap. It is cheap. You know, if it if it's five hundred dollars, which it's not, it's cheap. And I know Mike did not pay me extra or he didn't pay me anything. <laughs> so uh, this is just true. Listen to this stuff. This stuff is awesome. This stuff is uh, this will change your life. You're not going to identify with every person and every tape, but I promise you though, you'll get one thing out of every every podcast. You will. It just, I always have over the years through your stuff, through Britain's stuff, there was always, even if this person sounded like the total antithesis of me, I would get something out of there. Something would inspire me. Something. Always. Every one of them. And you keep plugging that stuff into your, to your mind, good stuff's going to come out. You go home and veg out in front of the TV for four hours, you know, there's not going to be a lot there. You know, so... That's it. I appreciate you, man. Hope this helps somebody. Well, John, you share great tips and advice. You thrived before, during, and after the recession by being flexible, open-minded, and willing to try new things. Your focus on your client rather than on yourself has resulted in a sustainable business model filled with referrals from happy past clients and friends. Your target 25 identifies those most likely to refer and loves on them. Your client appreciation events are a success and have spread joy to your community. You show you can have fun and make money at the same time. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who generates 48% of his business from Sphere of Influence, past clients, and referrals, and sold 94 homes last year. Find out who he is on the next Success Call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.